0: Hey, PeachPod team, just a couple quick editor's notes before we get started today. We recorded this episode on Tuesday, you'll hear us mention that in the show, but it's not coming out until Thursday. And so just one update to add right off the top here. On Thursday afternoon, the Senate did pass disaster relief legislation, but it is unclear if it will the job will totally be done by the time that Congress goes on recess for Memorial Day next week, because the House still has to agree to what the Senate passed. So we're still TBD on whether or not that's going to happen. And one other note is the show concludes with an interview with State Representative Brenda Lopez Romero. She's running for the 7th Congressional District. The interview was taped on May thirteenth. Now here's the pod. Hello and welcome to Peach Pod, a Georgia politics podcast. My name is Kyle Hayes and I am your host. And today joining us on the podcast is Luke Boggs. Luke, how's it going? Oh, it's going great. Happy to be here. And back with us after a few weeks is Ben Stout. Ben, it's great to have you back. Glad to be back. Um, So on this week's show, we are going to talk about what went down at last weekend's state Republican convention. They elected a slate of new officers, and there was some question about whether the party would rebuke House Speaker David Ralston or the recently indicted insurance commissioner Jim Beck. So we'll discuss what went down in Savannah last weekend. And then for now, Megan is not with us on the first segment. Uh, But through the magic of science, she pre recorded an interview with Brenda Lopez, who is running for the 7th Congressional District. She is in that Democratic primary along with Karen. Carolyn Bordeaux and Nabila Islam. Uh, we talked with Carolyn already. Uh, and you're going to hear from Nabila Islam on a future podcast. Uh, but today you're going to hear Megan's interview with Brenda Lopez to close it out for us. Um, so that's where we'll start. But first, I think it's worth checking in on a couple little things, uh, little news items that broke today. Um, Today, an interesting one that caught my eye was an article from WSB that discussed the fact that the legislature is the only state agency that doesn't have to comply with open records laws. And uh, Maggie Lee, a reporter, pointed out uh, sort of the interesting point at the end of the article was that Brian Kemp said that if a bill ended up on his desk that expanded the open records laws to presumably include the legislature, that he would sign it. So let's go now to a live reaction from the legislature. (laughs) all right so yeah we'll see if that actually goes anywhere in the legislature um do you guys have any thoughts on on whether or not the legislature should uh have to comply with open records laws
1: from the perspective of the legislators i I think that the process of deliberations should not be foiable, right? You should not be able to, um, to, to know what one legislator was saying to another in the process of, of a bill being made. Um, I think that that hurts communication within the process. And I know frankly that they would just stop using their emails and which would be uh, bad for actually kind of getting progress done in the legislature. Um, but for things such as sexual harassment or, um, or uh, kind of other more specific items I could see being FOIABLE, um, but for kind of broad communication uh, through the process of of uh, legislators doing their, their business during session, uh, I I don't think that that should be FOIABLE.
2: Yeah, I find it funny because, you know, government's one of those things we all want it to be open and all think— we should be able to see everything as sort of the default. But I, I'm reminded since I've been listening to the uh whistle stop podcast about the uh you know, creation of the presidency during the constitutional convention and I, I think it was Madison that was taking notes and he just like did not plan to release any of them until all the people who had participated had died, and funnily enough he was the last one that, that died. So like that's the only reason we know, like, how that all went down. So yeah there there's some benefit to uh some of these things not being you know searchable for at least some time.
0: Yeah. And then another news item to check in here on um, so today, Judge Amy Totenberg issued a a ruling in an ongoing case um, challenging the state's voting voting system. Um, this was a case that we talked about prior to the midterm elections that you may remember. Um, she denied a motion from the Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger to dismiss this case, which considers whether or not uh, Georgia's voting machines are a secure system. The Secretary of State's office basically argued that the new elections overhaul bill that the legislature adopted, the session made the entire case moot, and the uh, Judge Schotenberg disagreed with that assessment. Um, Luke, did you want to add any more context? I know we were talking about this today, about what this means for the state going forward.
2: Yeah, well, you know, we we're recording on Tuesday, and this came out today, so I apologize if uh, I can't, re- you know, going all details about this uh, order and what it means. But my first reaction upon getting to look over the order is that basically this case is not over; it's the opposite; it's just beginning. Uh, a lot of the language the judge used is, you know, talking about as, as you should, and a motion to dismiss is the possibility that the plaintiffs could, you know, prove that their due process rights have been violated, that, you know, that basically that the plaintiffs had some claim, some basis for a claim. And basically uh, the judge said that they do. And so that's a pretty big deal because the, the heart of this case, like the thing that the plaintiffs are arguing is not, just that, like, oh, the old system that we have had since 2001 is bad. Obviously, that's part of it. But the main thing that they're arguing is that DRE machines, which are the machines we've been using in Georgia and like five other states use, um, are bad, period, even the updated ones. And so, I mean, this is going to be a tricky thing for the state to navigate, because if, Uh, You know, the court eventually finds that these machines are just not viable as a election system. You know, we could be in a pretty bad situation where we have spent a good amount of money on a bunch of new machines that the court says, yeah, you can't use those. So, I mean, this is something to watch closely.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I just find it, you know, less than shocking that a judge from New York who lives here in Georgia now who is appointed by Obama is sided with Stacey Abrams' attorneys. Color me
2: shocked. These Obama judges.
0: And then uh, one final item to check in on before we kick things off this week. Uh, We are recording on Tuesday, as Luke said. And on Tuesday, it is 223 days since Hurricane Michael made landfall on the Florida coast and then uh, plowed up through southwest Georgia. Uh, And in that 223 days, we still do not have federal disaster aid for farmers in southwest Georgia. Um, This is a really significant problem for folks down there. Um, We are, according to reporting, Congress is supposedly getting close to ironing out a deal, and they are going on Memorial Day recess uh, this upcoming weekend. They won't be in session next week, so hopefully that is some incentive to get something done. I know across the board uh, from state officials, everybody wants this to be done, Um, and so hopefully uh, Congress doesn't let us down.
1: Yeah, I'm hearing out of D.C. today. Um, so apparently Mitch McConnell has stated that they will have a vote on, uh, in the Senate this week. And the House has passed something which is called same-day authority. It's, it's basically like – it's also known as martial law. But basically what it is is it says that um, it allows for the House to have a vote the same day as the Senate. Um, so basically as soon as it passes the House, it will go immediately over to the um, – as soon as it passed the Senate, it will go immediately to the House and they can vote on it same day. And so basically, they're kind of setting the groundwork for this to be expedited right through once it gets through. And McConnell is saying that um, it'll happen, they'll get a vote this week.
0: All right, so let's move on to our first big topic this week. So last weekend, the state Republican Party held their biennial convention in Savannah and elected David Schaefer as their new chairman. But the energy behind the affair was mostly focused on President Trump with cardboard cutouts, praise from Senator Perdue, and even comments from some attendees about how Donald Trump is a real man and Democrats just don't like that. But for all the excitement, are Republicans a party on the edge as the 2020 election comes into view? Let's start on that point. Um and Ben let's start with your reaction to what happened in Savannah this weekend. You know, there was a lot of um there was a lot of energy behind Trump, but David Schaefer in in his speech talked about how the Republican Party was a party in trouble and there was a lot of frustration over the tough time that Republicans had in the suburbs with the grassroots organization there. Do you think that Republicans are rightly concerned about Uh, Republican chances in state elections and uh, their chances for President Trump in 2020?
1: I don't think they're concerned about their chances. I think that they understand that this is not a gimme state anymore. And they're and they're sounding the, the wake up call um you hit the the keyword in there that that was being used down at convention and that is grassroots um our, our previous chairman john watson did an excellent job doing exactly what he promised he would do he got the georgia republican party out of debt he settled the lawsuit that was out there he he raised a lot of money he did a great job but he was not a grassroots individual he never claimed to be and there and, and so there was there was a want there and i think that that's what uh, a lot of of the individuals down at convention wanted to see a change in, and I think that um, that when you look at some of the people elected that that they went with people that they felt were were more connected to the grassroots but more especially um, had a passion for um, for focusing on that coming into the twenty twenty election
0: Luke with all this focus on on grassroots efforts and on uh, Republican struggles in the suburbs, do you think that the strategy that they seem to be articulating that they need to take? Is undermined by the fact that the biggest priority for Republican state legislators in the state this legislative session was this abortion ban bill that has garnered headlines across the country?
2: It's a difficult question to answer. And it's primarily for me difficult because I've held some positions within the Democratic Party before. I've been, you know, part of my county committee uh, since at least 2012. And it's just, it's, it's really hard to measure the effect of these organizations and like what they're able to do because in in recent years they're really more and more become a clearinghouse for the the biggest campaigns in the state and sort of are facilitators of the strategy of, of you know effectively legislatures. So like, doesn't matter that Schaefer won versus someone else. It doesn't matter if they're taking strategy A versus strategy B. Like probably on the margins, but I don't really see like Georgia being won or lost by the Republicans because of who took over. You know, it's one of those things where like nobody wins because they have a good state party chair, but you could lose if you have a really bad one. Um, Similar to, you know, presidential debates and, you know, they never win the race, but they could lose it for you. And so I, you know, I just, I just wonder how much it matters.
0: But what about Luke? The, do you think that, I mean, there's obviously so, so electing David Schaefer, may have an important impact on sort of the nuts and bolts of the campaign operation. But do you think that that could get swamped by the debate over this abortion bill? I mean, that's what Democrats seem to be focused really heavily on. Um, But, you know, does it resonate enough to where even if the Republicans were to sort of fix their problems on the the nuts and bolts of the grassroots strategy, would they still be running on a tough message, um, given that this bill at least appears to be pretty unpopular
2: well you know to use a national example remember how much the gop since 2012 has focused on winning the hispanic vote and how much that's a priority of the national gop you know i just don't think it matters that much because like what defines the success of a party is its electeds and its candidates and the things that they're advocating for so even at the gop uh, you know, as a state organization is saying, we really care about the suburbs and we're really focused on suburb issues and blah, 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 blah. Like that is going to just get swamped out. You know, David Schaefer could go out literally every single day and talk about how much the party cares about that. But if their most high profile candidates are talking about the abortion bill and how that is the greatest thing the GOP has ever done, like Schaefer's message is not going to be heard by anyone uh, or, you know, really, I, I just don't, you know, state parties are there to facilitate the candidates in my opinion um and so i just don't see i mean to answer your question no it doesn't matter what schaefer does like people are going to talk about the abortion bill and no matter how successful he is at getting the nuts and bolts uh of the party together and you know bringing in grassroots energy i think eventually that grassroots energy is going to just be translated into supporting the candidates that are talking about the abortion bill
1: yeah, I think that Luke is right on kind of the broad spectrum, see like the presidential statewide. Like, does the the party chairman really matter in that? Probably not so much, maybe at the margins, as he said. But I think that, you know, you go by specific race, and I think it does. One of the big races that I think that this will have an impact on is the 7th district. now. I believe Rob Woodall has done a, a fantastic job re- representing his district up in Washington, but he's never been mistaken for a, a real campaigner or, or a great fundraiser, and uh, and neither was his was his predecessor. He was the uh, chief of staff for his predecessor, John Linder, and, and John Linder was the same way. He wasn't known for being a fundraiser or for being a campaigner. And I think that that if you look at the seventh district, that really the phone calls have really not kind of been ramped out. the The doors have not been knocked aggressively. The the voter reg registrations, registrations in the republican party have not been amped up in that area and so i think that is an area where you'd say that who is the party chairman how the ground is run there could affect the outcome of that seat because that you know that that soil from a republican perspective has not been tilled in some time uh but whenever you're talking kind of nationally and for president i don't think it matters much for some specific races maybe some of those um uh kind of suburb races that were lost by Republicans that they're going to try to take back or for the 7th District? I think you could see uh, an impact there.
0: Yeah, I think the one way in which the, you know, even improvements in the grassroots strategy in the suburbs may be um, impacted or, or sort of overwhelmed by this debate over the abortion ban is this question of whether or not the ban, if it goes into effect, would ultimately allow the prosecution of women seeking Abortions. I think that this point, you know, just particularly as somebody who's been consuming a lot of news this week, I think that this is a point that has resonated in the debate about this bill because, you know, traditionally, anti-abortion advocates have said that the legal punishment should be levied against the uh, the doctor, the provider providing the abortion, and not necessarily the woman seeking it. But you saw. Earlier this week, you saw uh, Renee Enterman say that opposing district attorneys who refuse to prosecute women is a wake-up call for Republicans. And Ed Setzler, the primary sponsor of the bill over in the House, included... Protection against prosecution for women in certain circumstances, but not not fully. And then I think an, a, a piece of audio that you may hear in ads this fall may actually come from the, or in next fall, may actually come from the 2016 campaign where Trump was asked a similar question um, early in the race where he was asked if if women um, should suffer any kind of punishment for seeking an abortion. And, and here is that exchange. What do you say about your church? They're very, very strong. They're to, but the churches make their moral decisions. But you, running for president of the United States, will be chief executive of the United States. Do you believe in in punishment for abortion, yes or no, as a principle? uh, The answer is that... There has to be
1: some form of punishment. For the woman? Yeah, there has to be some form. Ten, ten, ten you, years. I don't why? know. That I don't know. That why not? I don't not? know. I don't you know take positions and everything else. I frankly,
0: I do take positions and everything else. It's a very complicated position. So, in, in both of these cases, in in what State Senator Renee Antriman said, um, and, and she may be a candidate in the 7th Congressional District, I think she's widely expected to be. And then in what Trump said on the campaign trail in 2016, they both sort of walked this back. But there's a real lack of clarity as to what the outcome is going to be. And when you look at the polling, seven in 10 voters oppose overturning Roe v. Wade, according to an AJC poll earlier this year. I think when you get to this question of would women be prosecuted under the bill, and the fact that for the bill to go into effect, it effectively has to overturn Roe. That's where I think you get into this real challenge of, of messaging this, even if the sort of nuts and bolts of campaigning is, is working for Republicans.
2: I guess, uh, you know, Ben, you're you're very deep in this issue. The energy is obviously, like, on the right to stop abortions. Does the energy go so far into actually wanting prosecution against women? Because that's one thing I've, like, had trouble understanding is, like, is this something that some folks on the right want? How big is that group? Or are most people just concerned with stopping abortions and going after doctors that do them?
1: Yeah, I, I've been doing this for all my life, and I have never heard a single person say, "Yes, we need to be going after women and prosecuting for them for this." So, no, it's it's about going after uh, the doctor and really just making sure that the the abortion to the best of ability does not occur. You know, you may find some kind of real hardliners that are under some rock somewhere who say, "Yes, we need to prosecute the woman for this," but um, I think it's really just about, you know, from a legal standpoint, how do we make sure that these don't occur? Uh, and that and and how do we stop them and, and create consequences? and so again the what I have always heard is that the strategy has been to um, to put the prosecution, if you will, to put the uh, to the, the crime on the doctor performing the abortion.
0: well, and this is where I think you know if the Republicans were looking at the strategy out there and saying we can win the state easily by ramping up turnout in rural areas. Then I think that this issue would not be as much of a drag. I think it's just the fact of the map and where Republicans need to remake some gains to protect their the seat they're holding in the seventh, to try to flip back the seat in the sixth, and where a lot of the vote is going to be for Trump in the presidential race. That's where I think it creates this drag. Um, but you know the 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 plus side is is that Purdue is going to be, I mean Purdue is going to be right below Trump on that ticket. Purdue's approval ratings are better than Trump's in the state, and, and he seems to be uh, more favorable among suburban voters. And so to the extent that this becomes about Trump's economic agenda, and Purdue being a foot soldier for Trump in in that economic agenda, I think that that's where Republicans want the argument to be. It's just going to be a question of of which of those ideas actually wins out.
1: Yeah. And, and to close this one up, I know we're moving on. But I one of the things I'd like to add is just you know we're talking about what would be the political ramifications of this and 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 I don't mean to say that you know that this issue has been as big as let's say jobs in 2014 or something like that but this has been a cornerstone issue for republicans for the last decade or more and they have held the house they have held the senate they have held the majority of the congressional seats they have held both senate seats and they have held the governorship and I have yet to know of a Republican. There were some Republicans who voted against it. But I've yet to hear actually a Republican in, a, in an election say that they were not pro-life. And so, yeah, we have to see how like that plays out for actually that governance going into effect. But Republicans ran on this. Then they put into action what they said they were going to do. So I think that it would be a little silly not to, to credit the fact that, that they have been saying they would do this for years and years. People have elected them with that with them saying that and now they've done it so it's like what will the fallout be well people have asked for this
0: so another facet of uh convention this last weekend was how prominent Donald Trump was even though he wasn't there Kelly and Conway was there and the delegates seemed to be really excited about Trump's prospects for 2020 um at least according to the reporting that was a pretty different atmosphere from what we saw in 2017 where the state races seemed to take more prominence Um, what do we think about the, basically the end of the never Trump movement in Georgia, um, and the party being so closely tied to president Trump? Do, do y'all think that that has more downside for the party or more upside for the party? What do you think, um, the closeness for Trump means for Republicans generally? Yeah.
1: I mean, you already said it, uh, Kyle, the, the never Trump movement for all intents and purposes is dead. I've talked several times about my family member who uh, didn't vote for Trump the first time and will be voting for Trump this time because um, she didn't really believe what he was saying the first time, that he was as conservative as he said he was going to be because his track record didn't show it. And he's governed that way. And so this family member will be voting for him now. I think a prominent person in Georgia who displays that again is Eric Erickson, who is a huge never-Trumper and has now come out saying that he's probably going to be voting for Trump uh, in this coming election. And so uh, the convention certainly, certainly... showed that. Uh, there were, you know, Everybody was fired up for the president and, uh, and excited about him leading the top of the ticket. And, um, and I think that that, that enthusiasm is, uh, is what you would want to see if you're a Republican. If, if you weren't enthused about your president uh, at convention, you probably have an issue on your hands
2: you know, the the, Trump was never going to be defeated because a bunch of Republicans stopped voting for Republicans. And so I'm not very surprised by this like consolidation around Trump. And I think honestly, the never Trump movement was a lot smaller than people acted like it was, you know, I can name some people who uh, are my friends and are Republicans and did not support Trump. And some of them probably won't support him next time. Uh, But like they're Republicans. And so like, you know, just in the same way, if there's a, you know, like Democrats found excuses to be okay with Bill Clinton's behavior, I'm not very surprised that Republicans are finding excuses to be okay with Donald Trump and vote for Donald Trump, who is a Republican. And as Bing has mentioned, and I think it's very important, like, Trump is very objectionable to me and to a lot of Republicans and his like personal behavior and the way that he treats our allies. As far as domestic politics goes, Trump has basically done everything a Republican could possibly ask him to do foreign policy wise. That's a bigger discussion. Trade wise, like bigger discussion, but like tax breaks, judges, like all the stuff that like Republican voters and Republican elites, you know, like the people that pay attention care about like Trump, I imagine we're getting A-plus on. So it's just like it's not surprising to me that uh, the party is rallying around him because if you are the type of person that would be part of the Georgia GOP, the things that you care about are things that Trump is doing very, very well on. Now, you might not like how he gets there, but as far as his results, he's getting the results. Now, what that means, though, is I think that is just going to uh, solidify the party's doom if Trump is going to get knocked out, then I think the energy around not just getting rid of trump but getting rid of all republicans will become stronger as well because uh a lot of republicans had the luxury in 2016 of like dancing around trump and being like well i don't really like him but you know i might support him you know like being like that and that's just not going what's going to happen this time because if you're a republican and you're running in 2020 you are donald trump's best friend and you love everything he does and you have posted the tweets on your wall and you read them before you go to bed right you know instead of your bible and I think that will hurt them in a lot of races and it's probably the reason why Democrats won't be at much risk to lose the house in 2020. I mean the Senate's been a long shot for a long time so I don't think it will make a difference but in some mar- you know in some races it very well might. And you know if Trump loses I think Uh, Republicans will lose some other races because of Trump losing that they might have should have won otherwise.
0: Yeah, I think now instead of dancing around him, they're going to dance with the one that brought him. And I think that the the danger here for Republicans maybe comes if Trump ultimately loses in 2020. I, I think Democrats have had to confront this question a little bit too. And in the wake of Obama's administration is, you know, they there was a lot of hope placed in Obama in 2008, and then there was a real neglect of down-ballot races in, in 2010 and 2014, and that contributes to a lot of the political problems Democrats have in states, uh, because a lot of those down-ballot losses came in state legislatures. Um, for Republicans, it's sort of a mixed blessing. I think if if Trump was to win re-election, he would probably have another tough midterm, During his second term, and that would be more opportunity for Democrats to gain some of the ground that they lost. Uh, But if he loses, and this is a party whose identity has become so focused on Trump, the person and Trump, the personality, it's just it to me, it's just really unclear what comes next for them. Don Um, Jr. Yeah, I know. Um, Yeah, maybe you (laughs) see Don Jr. who was actually in
1: the news. What was that today and yesterday for considering running for mayor of New York?
2: Is he really? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. No, that's a long time story. Like that, Don Jr. is one to run for mayor of New York and like governor of New York. Like he really wants to run for something in New York.
0: Well, uh, Bill De Blasio might not be the most hated mayor in New York uh, after <laughs> if Don yeah. Jr. was well, to win I, that race. If I was Don Jr., I'd run for attorney general. <laughs> <laughs> um. So yeah, you know, I I think it's a it's a mix of downside and upside, but I don't think it's as easy of a question. Um, you know, you looked at twenty fourteen and, and all of these Democrats that were kind of wanting to keep President Obama at arm's length and say, you know, well, I'm not really an Obama Democrat. I'm I'm more of an old school Democrat. Um, I don't know. I think Republicans, for for better or worse, have sort of proven that if you stick with your the people on your team, it's in some ways better to be cohesive and, and not divided and um, I think that's why you saw such there's there's uh, so much frustration with Justin Amash, who is the first Republican to openly call for Trump's impeachment. And and there was a lot of frustration over in the Senate with the Senate Judiciary Committee subpoenaing Don Jr., um, which got some blowback from the president and, and other leading Republicans because um, it's just not a good look to not be unified. So I don't know. I think it's a. I think it's kind of a mixed bag for Republicans.
2: Well, I, the, the thing I would add on that is just that you're absolutely right that 2014 went really bad for Democrats, I think, because so many of them ran away from Obama. And if you look at um, you know 2018, I think it would have been a lot worse if it wasn't for Trump, for lack of a better way of explaining it. Making the election about him and we saw, you know, Democrat turnout was really, really high for a midterm. But I mean, Republican turnout was too. I mean, just in Athens, a lot of the uh, districts that I was working in, turnout was basically in like it's indistinguishable between a general election and a midterm during a midterm like you know, it was like a 200 vote difference in my own district so i mean that's pretty intense and so the fact that they were able to get that much energy uh you know around a midterm election on both sides i think is a you know testament to while uh you know democrats very well might not like trump and a lot of republicans might not like trump in some ways hugging closer to him does energize the Republican base and gets them to show up in a way that they might not if you were uh, not clinging to him so hardly.
0: Um, Any other final thoughts on convention?
1: Yeah, I just kind of the the big takeaway for me for convention is that you had two unofficial tickets. Uh, You had kind of the more establishment non uh, the more the establishment crowd. And then you had kind of the what the GRA crowd Georgia Republican Assembly who has run um alex johnson the last several times for chairman georgia republican assembly endorsed david Schaefer and i believe uh senator purdue as well as s- some more establishment officials uh s- some speculate john-, john watson behind the scenes were supporting scott johnson and jeff duncan um, uh,
0: openly endorsed scott yes johnson. absolutely and
1: so um and so david Schaefer won and scott johnson lost um, however, some others on that ticket that would considered, be considered on the GRA ticket um, did not win, and so there was kind of a mixed bag, right? Nobody kind of went down the ticket. Uh, the the uh, convention kind of uh, weighed each person on their own merits, and so there's kind of a, a mix of the two of the two sides. Uh, from the convention, which I think is interesting. So for me, that was honestly the, the big takeaway of, of convention was that no one side, if you will, one bent kind of one, they kind of took a mixed bag from the treasurer to the chairman, the second vice chair it was, it was a mix.
0: And is that is is this more of like, an intramural competition amongst the party or, or are these disputes heated? I, you know, it Just from watching social media, I actually felt like Scott Johnson might have had some momentum going into that race with the endorsement from Duncan, um, and then he's just been very visible as maybe the most aggressive uh, Republican um, in that race. I mean, I don't know internal party dynamics, so I don't really know, but that was just the appearance. He certainly
1: worked the hardest, it seemed like, uh, kind of as far as social media and and. and of posting things and being visible, he worked the hardest, but that's because he had to know he knew he had to make up the ground of a statewide lieutenant governor's race, right? And he just didn't do that, he didn't make up the ground of a million dollars spent on name ID to become a lieutenant governor. And so, whenever you have somebody of that caliber who has been the senate pro tem for years, who has made friends all along the way, and then ran a very competitive lieutenant governor's race, and then you're going to try to and then you're as a party activist going to try to make that up. It was just too much ground to to cover. And, um, and I have a friend who's a a general consultant did a quick whip count when he got down there. And he was like that, that race was over when, when people got down there, it was never close.
0: Just to wrap up here. One other sort of notable development at convention was something that did not happen. There was this question going into convention of whether or not, uh, the attendees would rebuke house speaker, David Ralston, who has been under fire, uh, Basically, since during legislative session over reports that he abused his privileges of legislative leave to delay criminal cases where he was the uh, where he was the defense attorney, and um, that his delays in those cases made it harder for uh, victims in those cases to pursue justice. Um, but this, uh, Ben, if I'm getting this right, this was ultimately not a fight over an actual vote this was a, a procedural fight where uh ultimately the party did not take an opportunity to rebuke the house speaker over this issue
1: that's correct and and uh the MC, if you will kind of the master of ceremonies is is barry fleming he's the chairman of the judiciary committee and a uh a long a kind of uh a veteran at this and um and he was a tactician at this and and Um, a tactician at making sure that that did not come to a vote. He's certainly a friend of Ralston's. And um, and so it was more in kind of the procedural things than it was the floor vote. My personal opinion is that if it came to the floor vote, there's a good chance that it may have passed, but it but it didn't come to that.
0: And they also didn't rebuke insurance commissioner Jim Beck, who was recently indicted. But I don't know that that's really all that meaningful at all, given that there's now pretty universal calls for him to step down and, and not a lot of defense of him once the details of the indictment came out. So I don't know that there's much to read into a lack of a a rebuke there of the insurance commissioner.
1: Yeah, I think the governor's request for him to step down is enough rebuke as it is.
0: And then one thing that I just could not let go. uh, Another thing that actually didn't happen uh, for the party was they did not elect Nathaniel Darnell as the treasurer of the state party. uh, But he was notable because he wrote in 2014, and this is not 1914, this is 2014, that women should only vote if they have consulted with their father or their husband first. And that if the advice from their father or their husband contradicted how the woman believes that God wanted them to vote, then it would ultimately be best for them not to vote. Now, this was an old blog post, I, I think it's unclear about whether or not he still sticks to those views, um, but quite the cast of characters over there that was uh, contesting for party seats. Um, but he's he's not elected. But but w- what an opinion there! All right. So with that, let's close out the show. Uh, we will turn it over uh, to Megan, who pre-recorded an interview with uh, State Representative Brenda Lopez Romero. She is a candidate for the seventh congressional district. She is in that primary. Um, fighting it out with uh, Carolyn Bordeaux and Nabila Islam. Um, So let's turn it over to Megan's conversation with, with Representative Lopez Romero.
3: On the show today, we're joined by Representative Brenda Lopez Romero. Brenda is the state representative for District 99 in the Norcross area. She started her own law firm and serves as vice chair of the Latino Caucus for the Democratic Party of Georgia. Thank you so much for having me. We're so excited to have you and to get get to know you a little bit. Um, so would you mind just giving us a little bit of information about yourself?
4: Yes. Well, as you, as you had mentioned, I am an attorney. I do primarily um, immigration matters and um, in immigration court doing uh, removal defense and family based immigration and some work visas. Um, I'm also um, been working as a community advocate with uh, community-based organizations that work with issues of immigrant rights, civil rights, and voting rights. And um, currently, I am on the education and retirement committees in, in, in the legislature. And edu- education for me is kind of one of those um, things that have been of most importance um, in my personal life. And the reason why I am um, Oh, so we seek to push um, improvements on the quality of
3: education great. Well, that makes a lot of sense. That's a super important topic to us too. um so let's go ahead and kick things off with some questions. If you get elected to represent the seventh congressional district, chances are Democrats had a pretty good night, including likely taking the White House back and possibly the Senate. So, you would be going to Washington to govern presumably presumably, in your view, what should be the top priority for the next congress?
4: I actually um, think about it in two prongs, right. I believe that there is one national issue that is vital um, that is is still important in the seventh congressional district and but that would be the issue of um, continuing to improve and keep quality. Uh, affordable health care. Um, and I say it in two prongs because I think that's the conversation we've been having uh, over the last two to four years of what we've seen is absolutely necessary and key to the, um, basically the thriving of our economy here in our state and obviously nationwide. My second prong to that is this. In terms of the individual person, the, every resident in the 7th Congressional District, what affects us on our day-to-day is our pocketbook. And that's why I think it's also important that I continue to push one of the two most important things that I relate to that. Again, continuing to support public schools and, and provide higher um, affordability of higher education, but also supporting good job growth and a, a thriving economy through support of small businesses and entrepreneurship. For me, I can't separate any of those three issues because they're interrelated to making sure that we have a thriving society.
3: Absolutely. So I'm so I'm so glad you brought up healthcare a minute ago. Democrats nationally are debating what a healthcare agenda should be for the next Democratic president, and the de- the debate seems to fall along the lines of whether folks believe that there should be a role for private insurance coverage. If you're elected to the House, would you like to see the chamber pursue legislation that prohibits private companies from selling health insurance, or? Would you prefer reforms to the existing system where most get their insurance through their employer, the ACA marketplace, Medicare and Medicaid?
4: Well, to begin with, I do think this is an important conversation to have um, with my constituents. Now, the reality is this, we do need to continue to improve, one, protect and improve the, A, uh, the Affordable Care Act as it stands. But on the improvement side, most definitely, I think that We need to have these conversations about what is the best vehicle to continue to provide a greater coverage of health insurance because the ACA covers a certain gap of individuals, but most definitely does not cover um, all Americans that seek to have quality, affordable health insurance. So I believe that the conversation is most definitely open and should be open to um, have, for example, um, these are examples of things that can be improved upon having a government option, which is in fact something that was discussed when initially the ACA was, was um, being introduced and, and, and they were working on it. So absolutely, I think that that's, that's something that we need to consider and to consider how is it that we can broaden the access of affordability for, for health insurance for a far larger number of, of individuals that many people may be insured, but they're underinsured. And that equally is something that we need to take a look at.
3: So also healthcare related, but turning a bit more locally, what is your view of House Bill 481, a bill that Governor Kemp signed last week that would ban abortions at six weeks?
4: Well, I took, um, along with um, many of my colleagues and lots of advocacy organizations, for, for, primarily from strong women that were coming out to advocate basically for themselves and for their rights. Um, I took a strong position against it. You know, we are disappointed that, even, that now um, Governor Kemp has signed, but not something that we did not expect. And here's my, my, my and, and I think everyone that's out advocating for this issue, I am very respectful of anybody's decisions as to what and when and whether um, to bear children, how to deal with their own reproductive health. And for me, that is, that's, as you mentioned, this is a healthcare issue. This is an issue of having available proper, safe, legal procedures, medical decisions that only an individual woman in this case, because only women can be pregnant, um, how a woman woman would make a decision with that based on the information provided by her medical doctor. So you're absolutely right. I see the issue of 481 and the reason that I stand so strongly against it is because it really undermines the ability of having complete health care for women.
3: And although this is a state issue, there is definitely a role for Congress in reproductive health policy. Would you like to see the policy blocking federal Medicaid funding for abortion services, also known as the Hyde Amendment,
4: repealed? I would definitely um, take a consideration at, at that. Again, there should be no reason why a, a proper medical procedure, um, whether whether it be a termination of pregnancy or otherwise, should be taken off the table. Here's here's the thing: why specifically? Again, as you mentioned, this is a healthcare issue. Many people have to face this. this not um, and let me rephrase that. I want to be clear: many women have to face this decision about terminating pregnancies, not out of a simple desire of terminating pregnancy, but rather because there's no medical reasons why, um, there's emotional and physical reasons why it's, it, it may be um, the, the choice that that person, that woman decides to make. And th- we should not in government be in the place of dictating, not to the medical professions and most definitely not to any individual, how to best care for their, for their well-being and for their, the health of their own bodies.
3: Absolutely. I've definitely gone on record on this podcast saying some very similar things. I'm really glad to hear what you just said. Um, 100% with you on that one. So switching gears a little bit. um, We're going to talk a little bit about climate change, the projections for the impact of impact of climate change on the US have become even more dire. And a recent report came out estimating that the effects of climate change could cause about $54 trillion in damage in the long run. In your view, what should the federal government do about climate change?
4: I can tell you a very um, clear-cut example that we're facing here in Georgia. Um, and we're having currently uh, issues of how do we deal with the resilience and, and support for our farmers in South Georgia that have been um, victims of uh basically weather changes and weather patterns um, where, where now we had Hurricane Michael devastate um, basically a year's worth of crop, right? And that affects them as as farm, um, as agriculture and, and the industry, but also affects us as consumers in our pocketbooks, as I mentioned, right, with the cost of, of, of um, produce having to go up and the cost of timber as well, because we have um, a large timber industry in, in South Georgia. And so these issues of climate change are not solely issues about the well-being and, and the health of our Earth, which we only have one of those, and we need to protect that for the, for the future. But at the end of the day, it all relates back to the well-being and health of our economy here in our state and in our nation. So we absolutely have to look at making sure that um, the government continues to provide the resources necessary to have evidence-based, science-based studies and research on how these issues affect, um, our, our how climate is, is is affecting and is providing um, particularly these devastating consequences that you just mentioned and that I highlighted with what happened with Hurricane Michael here in Georgia.
3: Absolutely. I'm so glad you brought up Georgia specifically because Georgia is definitely affected by climate change. whether people realize it or not. And to kind of ask you a question along the same vein, Um, one of the things that we can do to prevent climate change is related to streamlining our transit. And earlier this year, Gwinnett County rejected a proposal to join MARTA. County leaders have since begun reassessing how they would build support for another referendum, while conservative state legislators from the county's delegation briefly considered prohibiting the county from taking up the MARTA question again. How do you view your role as a member of Congress in building support locally for transit? Or would you view the vote in March as the end of the discussion in Gwinnett?
4: Well, I believe that the federal government and us as legislators in Congress actually do have a very important role. First of all, we have a role in in continuing to provide funding and resources to promote projects such as public transportation, particularly transit. And so absolutely, we can take a look at that basically as a budget item. Um, as a budget item, right? That, that's crit- critically important. But you're right. I also think that absolutely as a person, um, as a congressional person, it is vital that we continue to use our platform in Congress to work with our local governments to continue to promote um Public transit generally um, and public transportation, again, in Metro Atlanta, absolutely important. But this is an issue that affects all of our state. And if, you know, as quite frankly, what happened with the Republican legislators that tried to uh, um, prevent Wayne County from having another referendum vote is really something that is has, was self-serving. It was. For purposes of their own concerns because the districts are becoming far, far more competitive and we had so many seats split, particularly in Winnett County, but the reality is that every business um, powerhouse in Winnett County was severely um, disappointed by, by their efforts and were completely pro-bump pro, um, transit and- as, as again it goes back to economy and to our bottom lines in their pocketbooks, right? They understand that the only way we're gonna be able to continue to sustain growth, to continue to attract businesses to our county and to our region and to our state is for us to have good infrastructure. And infrastructure of course includes roads, bridges, but it also includes transit. And anyone that does not under that does not support that does not really support the well being and economic growth of our, our,
3: our region and our state. So, to switch gears to a little bit more, um, I guess you you would say like people central, centric politics. Of course, all politics tend to be people centric, right? Because um, you're you're serving your, the nation and your constituents. But just to be a little bit more specific, the nation has not historically been terribly LGBTQ friendly, but is statistically becoming more so. What are you going to do to support LGBTQ Americans in the workplace and in achieving true personal equality as compared to their straight peers if you're elected?
4: Well, one of, a good example of what we're working at, and again, something that even in Congress, it is a on uh, the elected officials and the congressional um, delegation to ensure that they work with their local governments. That's absolutely vital to me, and that includes our state um, elected officials. And so this year, for example, in the Georgia um, House of Representatives, we passed um, a hate crime bill that included, for example, um, uh, actually included for the first time in any of our state statutes, um, LGBT community. And now it passed on our House side, it didn't um, get passed on the Senate side, but that is something that we need to continue to push for. Now, we also do not have um, an equal rights um, amendment, uh, ratification of, of the equal rights amendment, and we need to continue to make sure that we continue to work to ensure that our state covers and that obviously includes equal pay for for um, for equal work with um, with gender discrimination, but that also includes all protections of unique gender discrimination generally.
3: Exactly. And and what are your thoughts on the? I, I realize that this is related to the current Congress, but what are your thoughts on the Equality Act that's in front of both the House and the Senate at this time?
4: I, again, I think it's it's a, a first um a, a important first step that we need to do to ensure that we continue to um, work. Quite frankly, you know, we're now in the 21st century, and we're basically talking about 2020, and the fact that we still have to continue to work on these issues of, of gender equality, whether it's in the workplace or whether it's, um, you know, whether it's within any institution within government, I think that um, you know, it, we're far behind, and that's most definitely something that I'm going to continue to be vocal on.
3: Immigration issues in the United States have become a fraught national conversation, and we've seen families completely torn apart with very little hope of being reunited. We've also seen people raised here in the U.S. being sent to countries that they've never known because factions of the government think that they just don't belong here. So what are you going to do as a congresswoman to support fair immigration policies?
4: I will tell you this. Um- the issue of comprehensive immigration reform, and including um, having a DREAM Act for, for those that came when they were young, this is not a partisan issue. We have made it so in the sense of this has been discussed like that, particularly in, in sort of like national media. But the reason I tell you that this is not a partisan issue, we were really close to passing comprehensive immigration reform in 2012 that had bipartisan support. Um, and, and the reality is that I've, as I've gone through not just not just in Metro Atlanta, not just in the seventh congressional district, but even across our state, immigration reform is absolutely necessary. We need the workforce developed. Um, uh, and I'll tell you also personally, this this is a very very personal story to me because I I came to Georgia specifically when I was five years old, and it was because there was a, an, a law that allowed my father to petition to become a green card holder, and eventually petition for myself as well. That I had the opportunity to eventually become a citizen, and and then be able to um, use. Um, the the legal process of allowing me to be able to naturalize into a country that basically I was raised in Um, and given me the opportunity to go from that and to go from parents that came from working class backgrounds that came with less than elementary school education to in less than one single generation have their daughter be able to go on and be first-year um, college graduates, to be a first-time uh, first graduate law school, and obviously to have the privilege and honor to represent um, our state in, in the state general assembly. This is the story of the people that I know that, that are working bas- and basically have all the American values. And love this country as much as anyone that had happened since was born in this country. And I think that when, when individual people start hearing those stories and when we've had particularly, um, dreamers come and talk to even our state legislature and they get to know you as a person, I think that's what, that's what people need. People need to understand that we are, we are neighbors, um, and we are, and we are your, 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 your children's, um, classmates and, Especially now, after um, DACA recipients have been able to go to college and have started their own professional careers, now um, the DACA recipients are, are your, your doctors, they're your teachers, they're your nurses. So I think that this is the conversation that I can bring that's a personal conversation to ensure that we start humanizing again whom we're talking about when we talk about the need for for, for um, comprehensive immigration reform.
3: Absolutely. So you mentioned treating people as your neighbors, you know, not just the people who look like you, but also immigrants and and people who don't look like you. One of the other issues that we're seeing in this nation is an upswing in racial profiling, hate crimes, and religion-related threats and violence from the alt-right. Do you have any ideas of actions Congress can take to protect and encourage the diversity and ultimately inclusion
4: of um, all races in the United States? I will tell you, especially in, the, in our times that we are in, one of the most important things that we can do is make ha- making sure that we have people that are vocal in Congress to ensure that we let folks know exactly what we just discussed, that we are all neighbors and that we're all here to work for the same um, general welfare of our country, in your state, in your city, where, wherever it is that you live. And I think that the narrative of that conversation needs to be taken back to that narrative that we are talking about. Uh, individual people that are investing in the well-being, not only of their futures, but in the future of everyone, including U.S. citizens, including U.S.-born citizens. And so I think that we cannot start any legislative process and proposals if we don't um, take back the narrative um, away, as you mentioned, from anyone that tries to um, use extreme language to dehumanize or demonize immigrants.
3: Gotcha. So I have kind of a fun question for you. I was reading your bio um, before this interview, and I noticed that you have kind of a curious certification. You hold a law degree from Syracuse University with a National Security and Counterterrorism Certificate. Can you tell us a little bit about what that means?
4: Well, sure. Absolutely. You know, one of the reasons that um, I, uh, you know. I believe that i 'm the best candidate in in the seventh congressional district is not only not only the legal and the legislative um, experience that I have but in policy and educational um aspect of my life. I've always been involved and been really interested in national federal issues, but also international affairs. issues. Even as an undergraduate, I concentrated in international affairs because I was always interested in how our globalized world and our geopolitics affect us here in our country and locally. And so when I went on to law school, very similarly, simply because I think part of my interests um, rely uh, lie on in that sector, especially in, in issues of um, smart power through our Department of State and in diplomacy. Um, I ended up having a um, working with. What was former special prosecutor for um, for the Sierra Le- um, Leone tribunals, um, David Crane, and he had a certification um, for national security and counterterrorism issues. So a lot of my legal background that I did and the work that I did, particularly um, particularly in law school, revolved around issues of anything from arms conflict to being on national security agency seminars, um, and also within within the context of international law, humanitarian law, human rights law at the at the in, in with an international focus. And so um, one of the key components that we always discuss in all of these areas with this certification is the intricacy that all of these issues of smart power and diplomacy have and how important they are to the defense of our country and how important they are vital, I would say, to the national security of our country, where we can continue to have both um, a strong support for civil rights and civil liberties, and at the same time, Um, have a moral standing in the international world so that we can continue to ensure um, the the safeguard of democracy, not only here at home, but abroad.
3: That's really cool and impressive. And I'm glad I asked you about that. I've just I've never seen that on anyone's bio before. So I just had to had to ask. Um, So is there anything that we haven't discussed uh, that you want to bring up before we close out the interview?
4: Well, one of the things that I had mentioned earlier when, when I introduced myself and, and I think how important this is, I absolutely think it's crucial that we continue to focus on um, education and, and building a workforce that goes, into the tw- that, that goes into the 21st century, but quite frankly, we have to start looking about what sort of education, um, curriculum, and processes do you need to have um, a workforce for the 22nd century? Right? And one of the things that we haven't focused on is ensuring that we provide um, a proper educational background in te- technology and te- 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 technological capabilities, because that is our future. That is the future of this country, and that's also going to be the future of innovation that's going to be our next economic market uh, markets that we're going to go into. And so when I speak about supporting education, particularly, and I'm referencing public school education, we need to ensure that our public school education ensures that we're teaching students for the jobs that are coming up next century.
3: Absolutely. That makes perfect sense. So if we want more information about you, or if we want to help out your campaign, where can we find you?
4: Well, I am really easy to reach on social media. We're really active and I take lots of messages there all the time. So Facebook, Twitter, Snapchat, or Instagram, you can look for me as vote Brenda Lopez and also um, our campaign site you can sign up to uh, if you'd like um, more information or just you know be part of, um, be part of a campaign. that's vote com. And um, I, I, I truly always tell folks that I'm very happy to receive messages from folks and um, that includes on social media.
3: Well, thank you so much for joining us. We've been joined by State Representative Brenda Lopez-Romero, who is running for Congressional District 7. And um, thank you so much for joining us on the show. It was a pleasure to have you.
4: Likewise, it was a pleasure being on.
0: Thank you to State Representative Brenda Lopez-Romero for joining the show. And thank you, Megan, for recording that wonderful interview. For now, we are going to leave it there. So we'll talk to you all next week. That's our show for the week. If you like what you heard, share the show with a friend and go over to iTunes and give us a rating or a review. It really helps other people find our show. We'll be back with another episode of Peach Pod next week. Until then, take care, y'all.